Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel, and I'm here with Booktopian Ben and best-selling author Heather Morris to talk about her new book, Stories of Hope. Thanks so much for joining us, Heather. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be seeing you, even if it is only virtually. Much rather prefer your office. <laughs> so would we. <laughs> it's an honour to have you back, Heather. Last time we spoke, you you were at Booktopia HQ, where you just signed an enormous pile of your second novel, Silka's Journey. And when you were with us, uh, you, you talked about, uh, obviously, the life-changing uh, conversations you had with Ale Sokolov. But you also mentioned that as this runaway novel of yours, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, um, journeyed into the hands of readers around the world and into new languages, um, more and more stories were coming out of the woodwork. People were contacting you left, right and centre and you were very busy and very jet set. Um, And you hinted that a new book was on the way. We now have it and it's something very different. Would you like to describe it for us? Yes, well, part of all that jet-setting around and getting stories come to me, um, it started to dawn on me that people were writing to me, not just to thank me for writing Lully's book, but they were sharing something about themselves. And it was generally something that was uh, tragic or traumatic that had happened to them or their family. And they were then saying that through the book, through Lully's story and his and Gita and Silka's survival, they found hope. And that word hope just kept coming into email, letter after letter. And I was saying to the publishers one day, you know, look, I'd read these emails and they just absolutely overwhelm me. And um, I find myself going back and reading them again. But I wasn't reading them. I was actually listening to them in my own head. And I was putting a face to the person who had written to me. And I was picturing where they were writing to me. And this whole notion of, why people wanted to suddenly write to someone they had no idea who I was other than I'd written a book. Um, and it was happening on too many times for us to ignore it. So it was, well, let's try and write something about what hope and stories, because, you know, stories, they go way back before we ever started writing them down. But from stories is where we do get hope. And, uh, yeah, so we worked out a, a format and a way to... Yeah, well, introduce you a little bit more to me, which is a little bit of a bugger, actually, because I'm actually prefer to be a private person. And um, it's not a memoir, guys. Know that up straight. You're not going to learn everything about me. <laughs> a little bit. Certainly. So h- how would you describe this book? Having just read it, uh, I think it's it's sort of, sort of a different, it's, it's, it's split between different sort of parts. Um, large parts of it are memoir, memoir-ish talking to other people um, yeah. for books and um, and people you met in your travels. But then other parts of it almost feel a bit like um, a, an instructive guide on how to how to listen and how to interview. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you read the introduction where I did come out very clearly saying, I have no qualifications to tell anybody how to live <laughs> their life and how to do things. <laughs> that everything I'm writing is just my own personal experience. And in terms of how we um, decided to write it, well, we were still talking about it, and I happened to be in Slovakia, in Košatar, and I was with my publisher from London. We were there doing research for uh, Silka. And uh, one night we stayed in the bar too long, and, in fact, we were kicked out. 
But during that chat, uh, Margaret just casually said to me, she said, well, yeah, have you always listened to people? And I went, oh, no, I don't think so. But maybe. And I was tossing it around. I said, look, the only person I really listened to as a child was my great-grandfather because I had so much time with him. He was very special in my life. And I said, yeah, nobody at my home was listening to me, my parents or my brothers. And uh, that's when we hit on the whole notion, or actually it was as a child, that unbeknown to me, my grandfather was instilling in me the notion, if you just shut up and listen, even just to the world around you, to the sounds around you, you can actually learn from that better than any textbook used to say. And I'd go there after school often, um, and uh, he would say to me, what did you learn at school today? That was his opening line for me. And, uh, and I'd say, nothing. And he said, all right, well, sit down with me and let's just listen. And uh, often we just listen to the sounds on the farm. I love the stories of your, your gramps, um, and in particular the stories about the war, the Boer War. Um, it, it's not a very well-covered... I don't think many people living today have many first-hand stories of listening to people who, who served in that war. Um, and in particular, the, um, the con his connection with Kitchener, I, I just that was like jaw-dropping. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, it's a bit touchy, isn't it, talking about Kitchener, given what he uh, <laughs> yeah. did. But um, for me, he saved my great-grandfather's life, and I wouldn't be here without him. So I am going to talk about him in the sense that uh, he was part of my great-grandfather's life in South Africa. And, yeah, my, my grandfather, great-grandfather got there by default. He shouldn't have been there. He was too young. And Kitchener literally picked him up and plucked him out of the the men, the young men from New Zealand who arrived there and uh, took him out of the battleground and made him his boy, he used to say, I was his boy, which meant that he just travelled with him and uh, ran errands for him, cleaned his boots for him. But I know he went on to do things that we don't talk about, but um, I'm talking about them. And you're quite right. And this is a whole notion of talking to your elders, and that's why I wrote that uh, whole chapter, because... I feel so bad that I never spoke to my own father enough. And people, once again, coming to me all around the world saying, um, I regret that I didn't talk to my grandmother or my grandfather or my parent about their life and now they've gone. And that would be coupled with, I have a grandparent who lived through, you know, the Crimea War or lived through something really traumatic in history. How can I get them to talk to me? So that's why we start with listening to your elders, because you know what, guys? Um, they've made more mistakes than you have, and just maybe you can learn a little bit from them. But also just you're doing them such an honour to, to you know, recognise and validate the life that they've led by letting them talk to you about it. It seems to have come at a very... Um opportune moment this this part of the story I think because it feels to me that there's a real absence of elders in our lives at the moment because of the pandemic yeah uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone that, that I haven't spoken to my grandparents um the, my living grandparents for the whole of the lockdown period basically except for very short phone calls um do you think there, I feel like when, when this ends and we have an opportunity to start speaking to people again, there will be a, a more of a hunger to find out to find out what you know their, their stories are. Did, was that in your mind at all when you were at least revising this book? I know you probably wrote most of it before this happened, but 
Um, have you have you thought about that connection? Look, I absolutely have, and in particular, I think it would be a wonderful idea if we can arrange that, or particularly all those um, elderly people who have been living alone, who have been totally isolated except for somebody dropping off some food at their front door, and there's plenty of them still existing, even ones in other states I'm, I'm hearing, they're just choosing still not to reconnect because they're still worried. But wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, we could arrange or if there were enough people interested to now go and sit with them and even if you just ask them what was it like for you living through this pandemic? Um, just get, give them a chance to talk to somebody and you never know where that'll um, end up and head to. You know, maybe there's a whole book in how the elderly survived the pandemic given that so many of them haven't. Absolutely, please. I know that I'll take any opportunity I can to be able to talk to them, not only about the pandemic, but about their lives. And that's what I do. Mm. Um, you also, the book is sort of structured around um, speaking to elders, which forms a big part of your um, professional work as, as an author. But you also branch into, into speaking, uh, how to speak to children in, in the second part of the book that I thought as a parent of very small children was extremely um, effective and almost functioned like parenting advice and was good parenting advice, I felt. So <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about, uh, and part of that I gather has come from you, you being your grandparents. I believe your grandparents are the same age children as my, as my kids. So uh, it felt very, uh, very true to life to me. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that, part of the book came about? Oh, absolutely. Well, how could you have a book where you're wanting people to talk to the elderly and ignore the kids? Um, you know, when I told my three adult children, uh, two of whom are parents themselves, oh, look, I'm writing a chapter about listening to you, to children. And they went, well, you're not qualified to write that. <laughs> um, we had a lovely conversation about, you know, how, in fact, they had seen me as a, a parent listening to them. And, you know, they actually ended up um, coming to the conclusion that given that here we were still uh, as adults themselves with families of their own and we are still all sitting around talking and listening to each other, that uh, maybe back then we did do something right, uh, their dad and I. Um, you know, I think I mentioned in there, well, I know I do, a book that I was given when my firstborn was um, arrived and it's called Pyjamas Don't Matter. And that's an extension of listening to kids it's um, it talks about don't you know fight the little things. If your little toddler doesn't want to wear pajamas to bed one night, and that's what the whole book was about. What does it matter? Is anyone going to be hurt by him not wearing pajamas or her? Unless they're a toddler and they need nappies, you know, let them go to bed with no clothes on. And that's kind of how I went with everything with my kids. In fact, you know, my adult kids try and tell us now that we don't think you were hard enough on us when we were growing up. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> sake. You can't win, by the way, all right? I'm just putting that out there. You're either too tough or you're too lazy. But, um, yeah, look, I just love watching these little people in my life, and they range from uh, nearly eight to just turned one. And there's a couple of... Uh, five-year-olds or six-year-olds in there and a four-year-old and it's it's fascinating and you, know, you can do it better as a grandparent I have to say that um, <laughs> I think that's really true that that advice that you give um directly mirrors advice that my mum gave me about fights I was having with my toddler 
about pulling up his pants after he went to the toilet. I had these big stand-up arguments with him where I was trying to get him to pull up his pants and I would leave him in the bathroom standing there and he would stubbornly stand there with his pants around his ankles. Um, and I would go, fine, well, if you're not going to pull them up, they're not going to go up. <laughs> my mum was just like, just pull them up. <laughs> Don't make a big deal about it. Pull them up. And then eventually he'll get over it. You ne- you never met an adult who doesn't know how to pull his own pants up. So and Pretty much. She was exactly right. Yeah, he's just challenging you, and that's what kids do. They've got to challenge yeah. you to see who, who's going to win. Well, And he won. <laughs> and he won. And isn't it lovely that he did have that little victory over you? Yes, it is, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, this is extending into um, the release of your the young adult version of Tattooist, which uh, has done extraordinarily well. Um, and I gather you're rightly very proud of it can you tell us how that how that came about and how it connects to this this book as well oh look right from the get-go um i asked uh, the publishers look at some point i would like this book to be a young adult book because i think that trying to reach children well you know young adults teenagers whatever you want to call them and getting them to know a little bit more about the holocaust i think we're quite lucky in, in australia here my children they uh, being in melbourne all went to the Holocaust Museum, for example. And so they had a taste of what the Holocaust was and they knew a little bit about it. But it occurred to me that not every child, even in Australia and in New Zealand, and particularly in the UK, uh, had that access. And I just wanted to be able to see if there was any way this book could be read by young people. And um, look, we didn't really dumb it down. And when I wrote the original version, I made it simple because I wanted it to be read by anybody. I've had nine-year-olds write to me who've read the, the, the adult version. And uh, I now do so many talks into schools. Sometimes I'll do two or three a day, connecting into New South Wales and, um, and Queensland. And not so much Victoria right now. Nobody's in school. But um, that will happen. And I go in person when I could, but now I do it through Zoom. And talking to anywhere between 50 and 100 plus kids in the classrooms for an hour is just wonderful. And uh, I get them to engage with me and talk to me. I say, no, you ask me questions. Some of you ask me questions and let's just uh, make it interactive. And they're now learning. What advice do you give to parents and teachers who are introducing that chapter of history to children, often really young children, for the very first time because uh, uh my partner's a teacher and and uh uh she's in her first year of full-time work um and she she's described some some really uh chance discussions she's had and her colleagues have had with uh primary school children uh that have been on some really hard and traumatic moments of time mm-hmm. uh that, that most children are, uh haven't had exposure to in their home environment how do, we, how do we start those conversations? But look, by keeping it simple in the first instant and not trying to ram too much down them, uh, just give them a, perhaps mention, do you know what the Holocaust is? Now, if they say no, don't give them a sort of half-hour spiel about it. Give them a one-minute answer to it and see if they ask more questions. Kids are just naturally curious. I mean, I find that that's why when I do my talks to schools, that I say to them, look, I could sit here and talk to you for an hour, but that's no fun for me or you. So let's make the whole time about you asking questions. And even if they haven't read the book, they they know the word Holocaust. 
and uh, and it just goes on from there. Kids will come up with a question if they want to know more. And if they don't, back off. That's the one thing I've learned. You know, I, I went to this um, event, for want of a better word, in a small town in upstate New York about 18 months ago. And this small town, it was very, very, so we say Caucasian, um, very nice town, beautifully seen, the whole kit and caboodle. And in the middle school, apparently a teacher one day walked past a locker and thought that somebody had painted a swastika on it. To their knowledge, there were very few Jewish people in that town. And anyway, the whole town got together. It had two high schools, uh, two middle schools and about four junior schools. They got together and they decided that they needed to teach the whole town a little bit about the Holocaust. And they started with the preps and the kindergarten. They found a suitable book and they made it Holocaust Week. And from the preps and the kindergartens, they found a little book that talked about um, and used the word Holocaust and was appropriate. So it's all about finding age-appropriate material. And then I came in at the for the last day of the week to talk to the high school kids, and that night most of the town turned out to a big uh, event I did for the adults because guess what? The adults need to be educated too. And so if this town could do it, it's probably a town of about, I don't know, five or 6,000, reasonable size. They made it a town initiative to learn about the Holocaust. Just wonderful. It's remarkable. Yeah, that really is quite admirable. Um, so to go a bit back to um, Lala's story, um, you managed to put some stuff into this book that you hadn't been able to include in Tattooist that I think people who are fans or who loved Tattooist would probably really connect to. Um, I particularly found amazing that story of um, Teslav Mordovich, the um, person who had escaped Auschwitz and, and, and gone back. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that story, why that story wasn't included and, and, and what changed? Yeah, look, hey, here's the thing, isn't it? That isn't it wonderful when history and memory actually do walk side by side and whatever you're being told, you can verify it with uh, you know, documents, factual documents. Well, the reality is that you know 75% of all the documents out of Auschwitz were destroyed. Now, Lully had told me that story so many times, so many times about Seschloss or Mordovich. I can say that better. And, I, I, I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> <laughs> I asked my partner, who, whose father is Czech, to, to at least attempt it for me. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll, just, we'll call him Mordovich. And, um, you know, Luddy never saw the book, but Luddy read many, many drafts of the screenplay that I'd written. And every time he reread it, he would yell at me, where is Mordovich? Why don't you have Mordovich in there? And um, I felt that his story with Mordovich, given that Mordovich's name is one of the four men name on the document called the Auschwitz Protocol, and that I couldn't find any way to confirm Lali's connection to him. That I was going to get some flack for this book anyway, but I decided, uh, no, I didn't, wouldn't put that in because that kind of uh, criticism I did not want of Lali trying to say he had a role in the Auschwitz Protocol document that was written up and subsequently saved hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jewish men, women and, and children. But here's the thing, hey, when the book came out, I had a contact, a, uh, an email from a, a, well, he was a journalist in Toronto, and he just simply said, I'm writing an, a belated obituary about Mordovich. And 
my guy talked about your guy. Did your guy talk about mine? Wow. I just wrote back two words. Hell yeah. And um, look, subsequently he sent me Mordovich's uh, written testimony, which had been translated from Polish into English, and he sent me a photo of Mordovich as an older man holding his arm out with the, the rose on his arm that Lully had changed from his number. In his testimony, he detailed the role that Lully played in literally saving his life and helping him escape out of Birkenau so that he could make his way back to Slovakia, meet up with Wetzler and Berber and the other gentleman he escaped with, um, Arnst, and uh, write that document that made its way to Sweden and uh, then to Washington and London. And, and these are the stories I can now tell you. Um, and it's another thing too, by the way, because the book's been out a while and a lot of people have read it. When I'm talking to people, well, they don't want me to talk about the book. They've read the damn thing. And the interest seems to be more in my relationship with Lully. And uh, hence that's why I'm talking about him in the book and our relationship. It's a fascinating subject that I could <laughs> I could listen to you talk to all day. Uh, when when you first talked to us, you, you mentioned that those conversations were were chats that you went into unsure of how you would then share them with the world. You just went in to listen. Um, and the, as you mentioned before, you, you, you tried to write this, this story, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, as, as a screenplay. Uh, it eventually became a novel. Um, and now you're writing in the format of nonfiction. Um, I find that really fascinating, this, 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 this uh, third jump in, in form, because with the, the Silka novel, Silka's Journey, I really felt like you were um, not only that had you, I was not only blown away by the fact that you had come into this whole other story, this whole other journey into a, a whole other <laughs> systematic regime of crime. Uh, it was incredibly powerful, just the subject matter, but also your writing took a, a, a step forward um, for me from Auschwitz to Silka, and now you're writing in a, in a new form, non-fiction. Can you tell me about that change of form and how you feel? Do you feel comfortable writing in non-fiction now? Well, look, here's the thing. Um, I wrote my first book when I was 65 years of age. I had no idea how to write a book. I'm not convinced I do yet. And so I have no training. I have no preconceptions about how I should write. I just kind of write, and um, thankfully my publishers either like it or they don't. But... Uh, it, it really does come down to me not knowing what I'm doing. And so when writing Lally's story, I didn't know how to tell that. They told me I had to write it as a memoir initially, and um, I quickly determined that wasn't going to work for me. And so writing his story and Silke's story is in historical fiction because having written it as a screenplay and done a few courses on screenplay writing, I like dialogue. I like there to be communication between my characters. And uh, autobiographies, biographies, memoirs restrict that uh, for me. So I get a bit chatty in, in my stories. Now, switching over to nonfiction, um, well, I just kind of felt that what I've written is what I say when I'm talking to people. And so I just went back to, well, how do I say these things when I'm in front of live audiences? I'll just write it that way. So again, it comes down to, I don't know, is it, is it a memoir? No, it's not a memoir. It's, um, it's just a 
a little little book, a simple little book, but it at its heart, it's got these amazing people who have travelled through my life, and I want to honour them. And and as you say, I write about listening to children, and you would have read the little vignette about my daughter and son-in-law, and I'm so proud that they gave me permission to write that because it's a very, very deeply personal storyline in their life. But it seemed important that, um, yeah, I'm brave enough to tell you that, yeah, hey, I too can screw up. And my screwing up with my own adult child had the potential to have very, very disastrous outcome. We were heading down that path and I wasn't seeing it and wasn't responding to it appropriately. So I guess I'm just saying to everybody, you're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Uh, the trick is to learn from them, I guess. I don't always learn from them either. God, I'm not perfect, far from it. Yeah, that was a really interesting uh, and obviously very sad story that and it, it, it does sort of undercut you, you. I don't think you intentionally set out to do this, but you come across in the early part of the book as as sort of listening being your superpower. So I think it's uh, it's definitely interesting to see how that shifts as you you know explore your personal life in a bit more detail than I, I certainly was not expecting that story to be uh, in the book. Um, it's it's a it's a fascinating read. Um, so. What what do you think is the next step for you in in this um, writing process? I know you've got other other books on the on the boil and other stories. Are you deep into research land at the moment? Yeah, and um, this one's going to be coming to you, Ben, because I'm going back into the the fiction. <laughs> and I think if you've seen the book, we've got a little teaser of the story in the back of uh, Stories of Hope. I, I give you a little story of uh, what's coming. And literally just this morning, I've been sitting here looking at documents and, that have come to me from Israel because this this amazing story of these three sisters uh, is has to be told. There are many, many others worthy of my delving into and recording. Um, I have, but this one jumped out. It jumped out how I got it, how it came to me, and um, and when I then made the journey to Israel to meet this 93- and 95-year-old uh, ladies and sit with them and I've subsequently been back in January this year and spent more time with them um, you're gonna love it because it once again ordinary people just living through an extraordinary time now their extraordinary time was not only uh, the Holocaust but the rejection back in Slovakia and then these young girls young women by the stage deciding no place here for us in our home country going into a forest, training to become freedom fighter and finding their way to uh, Palestine to, to fight for the state of a free Israel. And there, two of them are still alive today. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a good yarn. Wow. Oh, wow. That's going to be amazing to read. <laughs> I really look forward to it. Um, I feel like we could continue talking um, till, till the end of uh, the day, to be honest, but I, at some point we have to finish our conversation. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for writing this book. It's really fascinating. I recommend anybody who's liked your books to read it, anyone who is interested in, um, you know, historical nonfiction or fiction, because it's just it just sheds so much light on that. And even people, people who are interested in learning how to listen because I think um, that seems to be the core theme of the whole book. It's a, it's just a great a great read. 
Um, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, look, you're very welcome. And um, and through the book, I was grateful for the opportunity to be able to share with uh, readers how I, I got Silke's story, because to me that was important, that um, that you know that this is not something I dreamt up, that the many trips into Koshita, including drinking late into the night, um, gave me the, the material to write her story. Yes, of course. There's, there's just so much material, isn't there? Um, so uh, thanks so much for joining us, Heather. And if you would like to buy Heather Morris's Stories of Hope, you can do so at your local bookshop uh, or Topia the Pablo you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.